As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. I think, once again, our guest might top the best Twitter handle name. Afro-materialism. Welcome to the Malcolm Effect, Aaron. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for joining me. First things first, before we get into like the nitty gritty, the more serious things, tell me the story behind your Twitter handle. Yeah, so I guess I was just kind of trying to think of a Twitter handle for the longest time. And I had I had this one friend on Twitter who had a really impressive Twitter handle and their Twitter handle was queer socialism. And so I was thinking, right, I was like, oh, okay, what are some of the things that I think like sort of best relate to who I am and who can, or rather what mm-hmm. can really capture my politics. And so it's sort of as a result of myself being someone who believes very firmly in African liberation and also someone who upholds like a materialist analysis that I really settled on the handle um, Afro-materialism. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for telling us and the listeners. Okay, so I think we're going to have a great conversation given the things that you like to ground yourselves in in terms of politics. I think we're on the same wavelength. I love your tweets, especially your stuff about dialectics. So thank you. I learn a lot. First things first then. When you say like a materialist politic, what does that mean to you? Or explain to us what is a materialist politic? No, yeah. So that's a really good question. So I guess the best way to really understand what I mean by materialism is to really first sort of outline the difference between materialism and idealism. So Mm -hmm. materialism and idealism are very philosophical concepts and that they are concerned with answering this question, right, of what is sort of the essence of the world and to what extent can we really understand the world as it really is. And idealism is a philosophical approach that proceeds from the assumption that it is the spiritual that is sort of like the foundation for the world. And materialism really pushes back against that and argues that the spiritual is a product of the material. And so what I mean by that is essentially materialism is, again, a philosophical doctrine that argues that matter, so like the material world, is something that objectively exists irregardless of whether or not we happen to be perceiving it. And the way I really understand materialism as a sort of grounding focal point for my politics is primarily because the distinction between the philosophical and the political seems unnecessary, in my opinion, because if we do have correct political ideas, right, it should make sense that these correct political ideas are scientific. And so they need to be able to scientifically evaluate the world and they need to be able to adequately understand like what it is that really drives the world and what really pushes change. And so 
materialism, <laughs> again, is a very important outlook to incorporate into our politics because we can't really change the world without first understanding how the world really is, which sort of goes back to the whole Karl Marx quote, right, where he argues that the point philosophy, you know, is really to change the world, not just to interpret the world. And so that is really how I understand like a materialist approach philosophically and why I try to incorporate it into my politics. Thank you so much for that beautiful and elaborate explanation. That was dope. And I think essentially what we're saying is we're trying to answer the question, what are the driving forces that push history forward? The unfolding mm -hmm. of history takes place on what register, essentially. And obviously we're gonna have those who believe it's to be spiritual realm, if you're from a religious background, and obviously all hell King Marks for the tools of dialectical materialism, which teaches us that <laughs> no, it is the material reality that is primary. However, there is a back and forth, there is a synergy, there is an influencing of both the material that produces what we call the ideological, which then then re that then reinforces or influences once again the material. And I think it's important, and we're talking mm -hmm. about dialectics then. Yeah. So essentially then, I mean, my next question again would be, if that's materialist politics, why have you adopted that when it comes to black liberation or thinking about black people or thinking about black people transnationally defined? Why is it important in your opinion? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So again, I would sort of go back to the idea that in order to change the world, we really need to make sure that we have a correct understanding of the world. And so as a black person, right? Like I care very deeply about black liberation. I care very deeply about African liberation. And when I look at the current state of the world, I'm sort of unable to really adequately understand things without first taking notice of the fact that the oppression and exploitation of black people is sort of a feature of our contemporary society. And so the reason that I believe materialism really helps us to understand the nuances of like black liberation and African liberation is again coming back to this idea that materialism is a correct philosophical doctrine that allows us to adequately understand the world. And specifically, right, like when we take a materialist analysis and when we apply it to issues of anti-Blackness and issues of neocolonialism and imperialism, we are able to really understand what the oppression and exploitation of Black people needs. And mm -hmm. hopefully, right, like through a materialist analysis, we should be able to correctly identify the features that enable the oppression and exploitation of Black people both here in the United States, obviously, of course, and around the world, but also make sure that we can end it. And usually I like to remind people of this one quote by Mandela, where he's talking about dialectical materialism. And he explains, right, like through dialectical materialism, he sees this sort of searchlight that's really able to illuminate the dark night of racial oppression and that's something that i also believe very very firmly in so then my question to to you then and i know people often ask me this question and i know i also wrestled with it as well so i'd love to get your thoughts i do are you of the opinion or do you believe that once we merely shift the material conditions or or correct them in a way by reorganizing and restructuring production that racism would go away and there'll be no more anti-blackness. No. 
No, 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 absolutely not. And I think we should probably revisit your point about dialectics, right? Because we have to make sure that we're, you know, not just committing ourselves to a materialist analysis. We really need to make sure that we're incorporating a dialectical method in our materialism. And by that, I mean, I just mean like a way of thinking that really recognizes that all things are sort of interconnected with one another and that there are these Mm -hmm. underlying contradictions that we really need to work through if we're going to see any type of like change occur. So regarding the question of whether or not like with the elimination of class society comes the elimination of racism, again, it's really important to understand that racism is a multifaceted phenomenon And obviously, right, like when we look to how production is organized and when we look at the political economy of most countries, right, we can see that black people are super exploited and that they are having to work some of the hardest hardest jobs and receiving some of the lowest wages as a result of that. But there's also a sort of super structural component to black oppression and racism. And obviously, right, like as materialists, we understand that the spiritual or the ideological is a reflection of the material, but that doesn't mean Mm -hmm. sort of only by changing the material do we change the ideological superstructure, because again, these things share a dialectical relationship with one another, wherein they are constantly um, reinforcing one another. And so in the same way, right, that we have to strive to abolish Black oppression in a material sense, we also need to be aware of the sort of cultural struggle that will sort of entail Mm -hmm. a socialist revolution. And this isn't some entirely unfounded idea. Like Lenin was very clear when talking about the creation of a socialist society that we aren't just stopping upon having reorganized production. The fight for socialism is also one that entails a restructuring of the superstructure of society. And that means changing culture Mm -hmm. and recognizing that when we're building a socialist society, there are going to be these ideological remnants of from the capitalist society that preceded it, that we're going to have to work to. Oh, hell, the cultural revolution. (laughs) I mean, when we look at Lenin's writings, right, he's very clear that building socialism is definitely going to be this two-stage process and it's going to occur like obviously like economically but also culturally so i definitely look to Lenin's writings on the question of what it means to create like a society governed by proletarian values and a proletarian culture yeah nah you're spitting you're spitting and so much of what you said has echoed my journey towards the doors the blessed doors of dialectical materialism because (laughs) I think when you live in the realm of, not live, or you are involved in conversations about the metaphysical, and as interesting as they may sound, and even you might even be convinced by the argumentation, I often find myself thinking, but how can we prove this? (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Oftentimes thinking, okay, fine, I I agree it is a metaphysical. I mean, I'm someone of faith as well, Mm -hmm. but I make it very clear. 
my faith is for me personally as an individual and and I think people are moved to action by faith and we can talk about that further however I do think mm-hmm. in terms of politics as I say niggas are dying every day man like people are dying every yes. day on the street people are, are not people are, are hungry people are not eating so we can pontificate all we want about the metaphysical underpinning of such and such is a slave ontologically no shade no tea no yeah, tea no exactly. shade um <laughs> But, you know, but let's get down to how we're changing people's position. How are we trying to put people's, put food on people's tables, you know, and, and how we're trying to wake people up to understand that there's a better way of restructuring society. So, yeah, I fully hear that. Mm-hmm. But in terms of like Pan-Africanism then, what do you find value in Pan-Africanism then? Because I know, unfortunately, I mean, every group has reactionaries. Every group has its, I don't want to say sellouts, because I don't even think people are sellouts. People just act according to their class interests. But my mm-hmm. question to you, you know, you as... I don't want to assume, Do you, are you like born, raised in America generationally? Did you migrate to America, to USA? No, yeah. So I was born and raised in America. So I am not necessarily someone that has a, well, I don't want to say like a intimate connection because obviously like my relationship is very genuine and that I care yeah. about the exploitation and the oppression that's happening on the continent, but it's not a immediate reality for me, I guess is the best way mm-hmm. I should phrase that. The reason I asked then is why didn't the, you did you arrive at Pan-Africanism then? Because, you know, we have, unfortunately, the reactionaries, the ADOS, the FBA, the people who are, we are the original people of the land, all that stuff. So what is it? Why did you then arrive to like Pan-Africanism thinking about the continent? I mean, I really arrived at it as a result of myself just coming more towards a Marxist analysis of things and, mm-hmm. you know, just reading a lot of like black Marxists in particular who we're very clear in recognizing that there is no contradiction between being a Marxist, being someone who upholds the necessity of oppressed people aligning themselves with the working class and being a Pan-Africanist. Like, for instance, mm-hmm. like my probably most foundational Pan-Africanist leader, I guess I should say, probably be Du Bois. And Du Bois was also someone who was mm-hmm. very clear in recognizing, right, that there is this There isn't any antagonistic contradiction between being someone who is a Pan-Africanist, i.e. someone that believes in the liberation of the African continent, imperialism and neocolonialism, and also being a Marxist, being someone who upholds the October Revolution, which Du Bois very much so did. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. But um, not but, my question would be then, and this is something I... I don't know, maybe because I'm a black Brit, but not just being a black Brit, I'm also, you know, someone who was born on the continent and then moved to the UK. So it has a different dynamic as well. Mm -hmm. But, and I often get involved in conversations with um, my African-American brothers. I call them my African brothers who are in America, who are in the United States of America. And we speak back and forth. And there is definitely sometimes a specificity that they highlight, as in, you know, the patterns of, maybe oppression that they might experience might be different to what say let's say an immigrant from the continent who freshly arrives on the on the united states in the united states may experience so for example um and i'm not sure i work, i don't know i haven't got the numbers to hand now i know in the uk for example we have caribbean immigration and we have african immigration later on but again once you get second third generation into it you find that those differences collapse those stark differences that maybe we find that oh this group of people black people are doing better by third second generation in the, the stats 
are basically the same, almost identical. But I do want to ask, do you think there is a need to highlight a specificity when it comes to the oppression faced? Or is it just boils down to, let's say, a class analysis once again? So I definitely don't want to say it all boils down to class analysis because oftentimes people will misinterpret statements like that and go on to argue, right, that we completely disregard all of the other modalities of oppression that exist within a class society, which just simply isn't true. Mm -hmm. It's very important for us to recognize that the well, to recognize the unique oppression that African people experience within a capitalist society, as again, going back to my earlier statement, wherein I explained African people and Black people, you know, like African Americans, of course, experience a type of super exploitation, wherein again, they have to work some of the worst jobs in industries, they receive yeah. some of the lowest wages, and they experience all other types of inequalities, um, you know, that are obviously socioeconomic in nature, right? But then you also have things like police brutality that factor into it. And so it's definitely very important for us to recognize the unique oppressions that people experience if we're going to really incorporate them into our political project. But our ultimate goal has to be making sure that we're building relationships of solidarity between oppressed people and not trying yes. to isolate ourselves because we need to keep in mind, right, and this goes back to incorporating that dialectical materialist analysis of what is the principal contradiction that we're all facing as oppressed people, as yes. working class people. And that contradiction is it's capitalism, it's the imperialist system, and the only way that we're going to be able to really challenge that principal contradiction is if masses of oppressed and working people come together and recognize that as their enemy. Exactly, exactly. Nah, so eloquently put and so like eloquently, so eloquently put and so like succinct. So thank you very much for that. So moving on then, let's talk about cultural nationalism. Okay. <laughs> Let's unpack it and untangle. Why isn't the cultural nationalist, as I say that very ironically, I hope people can say my question is very ironically asked. When we're talking about cultural nationalism, more specifically black cultural nationalism, simple question, Aaron, why isn't it it? I would probably say it isn't it because it doesn't incorporate a materialist analysis, right? Like it has this very incorrect or sometimes just plainly inadequate understanding of the world. And so as a result of that, it comes to these very confused political positions that have no basis in material reality. For instance, most notably, right, in the fact that a lot of these cultural nationalists don't really concern themselves with the question of class. And so yep. as a result of that, they try to act as if black proletarians have the same interest as the black bourgeoisie, which again, there just isn't any real evidence to support the, the idea that we have the same material interest at mind. And that is really, really problematic for the cultural analysis. And that's really problematic for Marxists who espouse like a materialist analysis. So, yeah. I do ask that though. This is something I've also contended with in my own kind of, um, I guess, journey. As important as I recognize the primacy of materialist politics, is there room and should there be room for like race pride then? And should that be promoted as well? What do you think? 
like, you know, celebration of culture, celebration of certain things as, as black people, that are culture. I, again, I recognize that that's not a politic. No one's saying that, I don't know where it was, but we're not going to flip in twerk for liberation or we're not going to, you know, <laughs> all these things that happen that people would think is a politics of a liberatory politics, politic. But what do you think? Is there room, is there not a room for like empowerment in that kind of sense or making people proud of where they came from and things like that? Oh, yeah. So... On that question, I would probably have to refer to one of my favorite Black Marxists, Miss Claudia Jones, who has this really excellent quote on the subject wherein she explains that a people's art is the genesis of their freedom. And so I think that there definitely needs to be room for celebration of culture, for the incorporation of art in our movement, because as we all understand class to be the principal contradiction at hand. We have to understand that everything can't be struggle, struggle, struggle all the time. That's not how we build a mass mm -hmm. movement. That's not how we make people feel included in the movements that we're trying to build. We have to recognize that in our society, right? Like obviously people are going to be oppressed as proletarians, but they're also going to experience oppression again in these very unique ways. And so our task is really going to have to be about recognizing those unique ways and making sure that people feel included and sometimes celebrated. Mm -hmm. In my own organizing experience, like we have like a cultural committee for a popular political education organization that I'm a part of. And people on the cultural committee are probably some of the most powerful tools that we have in bringing together a lots of different nationally oppressed people and making mm -hmm. sure that they feel empowered and recognized. So I definitely think there's always going to be space for empowerment in our movements, but we have to make sure that we don't conflate separatism or the cultural nationalists with empowerment because at the end of the day, the only people that the cultural nationalists are trying to empower, right, is the black bourgeoisie. They're not trying to empower working class black people, which again, Absolutely. is kind of our goal as black Marxists. Absolutely. So the knowing that the primary antagonism is one of class antagonisms, even amongst, amongst black people, just a personal question. How do you feel then when you see acts of like racism experienced by the black bourgeoisie i mean personally i really don't care because the way in which they <laughs> i mean it sounds it sounds very crude but the way in which the black bourgeoisie experiences racism is in no way on the same level as sort of what is experienced by black proletarians and so whenever someone seriously asks me that question, I kind of get a little insulted because, you know, it's not necessarily, in my opinion, a form of racial oppression for some member of some board to make some racially insensitive comment towards some Black CEO. Like, I honestly, I could not care about that at all. But what I do care about, right, is the fact that the police in this country who function as an arm of the bourgeois state have the ability to kill and lynch working class black people with virtually no consequence. And so I think yeah. we really do need to make sure that we're understanding that class antagonism is primary because that really helps us to understand the difference, the different oppressions that are experienced by black proletarians and the black bourgeoisie, because they're just not on the same level. Absolutely. We're speaking about culture and cultural nationalism. I'm going to speak about your tweet today on, and I think it was referring to Cedric Robinson. It was. 
<laughs> I'm, I say think, but I know I'm just <laughs> I'm just going to introduce topic like this. But okay, speaking on Cedric Robinson specifically, I know his work does speak about the revolutionary kind of inherent revolutionary nature of the African. <laughs> and I know, and we know online, we go back and forth with, on this topic all the time. Do you want to expand a bit more about what you, what was the kind of impetus between posting that and your subsequent comments? No, yeah, of course. So again, as someone who considers themselves to be a materialist, I'm a little hostile towards ideologies that are ultimately idealist in nature. And I'm specifically a little hostile towards a lot of the arguments that are made by um, Cedric Robinson, particularly in his work, um, Black Marxism, The Making of the Black Radical Tradition, because throughout the book, Robinson engages in what I would call a type of epistemological idealism, in that he argues that the radicalism of Black people is rooted fundamentally in what he terms the Africanity of our consciousness. And this is a little problematic to me as a materialist because we are not engaging right with what are the material conditions that are sort of the response to, well, the results of um, Black radicalism. We are substituting that materialism for a kind of idealism wherein we argue that is the innate consciousness of Black people that is the root of their radicalism, which is, again, just very incorrect, right? You know, enslaved Africans had a material interest in overthrowing the slave mode of production. Similarly, mm -hmm. Black proletarians in this country have a material interest in overthrowing the capitalist imperialist system. Our radicalism isn't the natural or I should say innate epistemological practice. Like it's born out of these material processes, these material instances mm -hmm. of oppression that Robinson and other people within his particular school of thought don't ever really wrestle with. No, I heard that. I heard that. And I think I, 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 for the most part, I agree, actually. For the most part, I do agree. It's like I was thinking, I saw this chart and it mentioned like, on the right, it had, and it's not right wing, but just the right of this chart, it mm -hmm. had like those who have a pure metaphysical understanding of race. The middle was those who have it in between. The left was purely those who have a materialist analysis. So you can imagine they put Cedric on the right, they put someone like Cornell West in the middle, and they put someone like Adolf Reed in the left. Yeah. And I feel like as much as I have, you know, I don't agree with everything Adolf Reed says, mm -hmm. and I think sometimes he is actually class reductionist. I think his voice is so important. I think he challenges us so much to be on point in our analysis of what's actually happening. And I think he does like really spray bullets at the neoliberals kind of cannibalization of race politics mm -hmm. and even the black bourgeoisie. Mm -hmm. I think domestically is on point, And I think, you know, internationally we can have those conversations. Yeah, of course. I mean, so, I... No, carry on. Oh, I was just going to say, I, I agree. Thank you. So in the spirit of political education, recommend some authors and some books that you find, you found really like instrumental in your journey. No, yeah, absolutely. So I would probably recommend that people read Cedric Robinson's book, not because I think it's a great example of what a materialist analysis of the questions of Black oppression looks like, but because I think mm -hmm. a lot of us really put that book on a pedestal without actually interrogating some of the arguments that are in it. I think the 
best way for us to really critique the book and to really push past a lot of the arguments in it is by, again, sort of just interrogating it. So I would recommend people read Black Black Marxism by Cedric Robinson. And to Mm -hmm. sort of accompany that book, I would also sort of have to recommend this book by Frank Chapman called Amazing Book. Yeah, Amazing Book, Marxist-Leninist Perspectives on Black Liberation and Socialism, which includes a little deconstruction of Robinson's arguments within sort of... I think in the first, in the introduction, yeah, in the, in the, or the, the first chapter, in the introduction. introduction. <laughs> and so I think those are two books that really accompany each other. And I would also just recommend people check out again, like other Black Marxists, because we do have that long tradition of people who have left writings for us that are really important to look at. So people like Claudia Jones, people like Henry Winston, people like Harry Haywood, all of these people within this sort of like Black Marxist Leninist tradition are people that we really need to make sure that we're looking towards, because they were concerned with what it means to apply a materialist analysis to questions of racial oppression and questions of Black liberation. Thank you so much, Aaron. This has been an amazing episode. I'm going to have to get it, so I got it on recording. You're going to come back on again in the future? Of course, of course. Just let me know when. Okay, good. (laughs) Thank you so much. I'm going to put Aaron's socials in the comments on the description of the episode. Please like, comment, subscribe, hit him up. As you can tell, I've learned so much and I hope you did too. This is Mamadou on The Malcolm Effect and peace out.